Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series right now that's based largely on Psalm 14, verse 5, which reads, The Lord is with the generation of the righteous. And we've been asking, what does that mean? To First and foremost, two weeks ago, what does it mean to even be righteous? And especially because the first part of Psalm 14 is consistent with what the whole Bible says, which is that no one is righteous. No one is inherently right with God, desiring God, wanting to live for his glory and glory alone? No one, David says. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 3 and says, yes and amen. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so we saw in that first week that it's only by God's grace through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who took the wrath from God that we deserve for our sin that we might in Christ be declared righteous even as by His Spirit we are being made righteous, being made into that which we have been declared by God's grace to be. So that was week one. Last week we asked the question, okay, given that, what does it mean then to live as a righteous generation? What does it look like for the adults of Grace Church? You know, those who are, you know, um, you know, young adults, old adults, senior adults, those of us who are here at Grace Church, what does it look like for us to live as a righteous generation in our cultural moment? And we looked largely at the verses right before what I read just now in uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. And I'll, I'll read it again for us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we, we took that phrase... Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And looked at the fact that in the Greek, the word that's translated conduct here is is actually perhaps better translated way of life. Keep your way of life. And again, Peter here says honorable, but the Greek word there actually means beautiful. He could have used a different word for good conduct. It's a word that he actually uses, agathos, in uh, the passage we're looking at this morning. We talked about doing good. But there, when it comes to honorable conduct, he's talking about beautiful life. Keep your way of life beautiful. And so that's what we looked at last week. The righteous life, the life lived following Jesus in the way of his kingdom, is in fact beautiful. It's a beautiful way of life. It's the way that life was meant to be lived. To be most fully human is to live life in obedience to God under His Lordship, seeking His glory, worshiping Him and enjoying Him forever. This is what it means to be human. The fact that that even sounds weird to us is an indication of how much sin has warped us to the core of our very being. So last week, we looked at the righteous life and how we live it individually, how we live it as a church family, and what it looks like to live uh, a righteous life in society. And I, I wanted to talk about what does that look like politically. 
last week, and I realized I do not have time <laughs> to cover that. Uh, it would have been the fourth sub-point of the first point, which I said last week, hey, the first point's going to be really long, but I didn't want to make it that long. All right, so this is that, what I wanted to talk about last week, kind of blown out into, blown out into a, a full sermon. Now, you know, if you know me, you know I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you what party you should align with. Um, I remember back around the 2008 election, uh, someone uh, took me out to, uh, to coffee um, and said, you know, Mark, I've been going to Grace uh, for a number of years now, and it's really bugging me. I can't figure out what you are. And I was like, I'm doing my job. So that's hopefully what's going to be the case here this morning as well. I am not here to tell you who to vote for. I'm not here to tell you what party you should align with. I am here to simply wrestle together with you over this question. What does it look like politically to live a righteous life? What does it look like as those who are following Jesus in the way of his kingdom to do so politically? In this environment especially, in which we find ourselves in. In fact, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that at least in the generations that are represented here in this room, there has never been a time in our country in which it has been more important that we live a righteous life. Now again, I'm not going back into the history of the country. I'm just saying, in terms of our collective memory... There's probably never been a more important time to figure out what it looks like for Christians to live a righteous life politically. Uh, in an article, an essay titled, America is Having a Moral Convulsion, that David Brooks published uh, just this past week, he, he points out that in 1997, 64% of Americans had a great or good deal of trust in the political competence of their fellow citizens. So two-thirds felt like, you know what, I may not agree with them politically, but I can trust that they're thinking this through. And that number now is down to just a third. All right? We live in this age of us versus them, this age of political polarization. David Brooks in that same essay points out that that lack of trust isn't just limited to the political sphere. It's general. It's generally true. In uh, 2014, only 30% of Americans felt that most people can be trusted, just generally, which was the lowest percentage since that particular survey was instituted in 1972. So, you know, in a sense, what that means is that the presidential debate that we just saw wasn't, you know, essentially two men who appear to hate each other. They were, in a sense, reflective of the fact that America is nearly divided between two groups of people. That it may not be a stretch to say, to some degree, you know, despise each other. Certainly don't trust one another. And that's not going away. I mean, no matter who wins the election that's coming up, because of social media and its influence, it is probably safe to say that we will not only continue to be a polarized society, we'll probably increasingly become a polarized society. So again, what does it look like to live as a righteous generation in a politically polarized world? And I think Peter tells us in this passage. I think he tells us three things that we need to see. First, I think Peter tells us that we need to maintain kingdom fidelity. Maintain kingdom fidelity. Secondly, reject political idolatry. 
reject political idolatry, and then third, live as people who are free. So maintain kingdom fidelity, reject political idolatry, and live as people who are free. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this passage now, we pray that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that that which is uh, true and points to the beautiful way of life that you call your people to live as we follow your Son in the way of his kingdom would be things that we grasp from this passage, that we might live indeed as people who are righteous in every sphere, including that which is political. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so maintain, maintain kingdom fidelity. Where do we see that in the text? Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. All right, now let me remind you who was on the throne when Peter wrote this letter to the churches that were in the Roman Empire. It was Nero. Nero, who famously, you know, torched Christians, torched, you know, Rome, and blamed Christians for it. Nero, who was responsible for the beginning, the leading edge, if you will, of state-sponsored persecution. And Peter is saying, submit to the emperor. All right? But to do so out of reverence for the Lord. It is fidelity to God that drives submission to the emperor, not fidelity to the emperor that drives submission to the emperor. Now, you know, you can't expect to find the whole truth in one place in Scripture, right? And so Peter himself would say, if we had the opportunity to talk to him right now, you know, Peter, does that mean that no matter what the government's telling us to do, we should submit? Peter would say, no, because remember back in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when, you know, me and the disciples were being confronted and we were told that we had to stop proclaiming Christ. And I said then, you know, that we need to submit to God and not to man. So, wherever the government is forbidding you to do that which God requires or requiring you to do that which God forbids, then you submit to God and not man. You reject the ruling authorities at that point. But, you know, that aside, even when it's someone like a Nero on the throne, you submit out of reverence for God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human Institution, and then again at the end of verse, at the end of the passage, at the end of verse 17, there's those last two phrases: "Fear God, honor the emperor." And the words there matter. The word "honor" is from the Greek word "timeo," where we get the word "timid" from it. But what it meant in that day and age was to give to each person or each group of people what they were due. So, uh, uh, children were to, to meo their parents. They were to give them the honor which they were due. Uh, a society should to meo its older citizens. They should give them the honor that they are due. And Peter is here saying that we must to meo the emperor. We must give him the honor to give him that which he is due as such, as emperor. However, he says we must phobeo God, fear God. It's 
the word from which we get the word phobia. It means to be shaken to the core. It means to, to be absolutely focused in reverence and awe on whoever we are setting our fear on. Right? And so he's talking here about ultimate allegiance. The one before whom we bow. The one whose opinion matters more to us than anyone else's opinion. The one before whom we know we will ultimately be judged. The one who is indeed the king over all. We phobeo God. We temeo the emperor. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. And then, you know, just looking back at 1 Peter as a whole, we remember what he said in verse 11 of, verse, of uh, chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He's picking up from what he said back at the very beginning to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then the rest of the book is going to be all about how to live as people who aren't from around here. People whose citizenship is another kingdom. People whose home is somewhere else, if you will. People who are resident aliens in a land that is not ultimately their own. Alright, so Peter is saying that we are to honor God, honor the emperor, fear God as those who are exiles in a land not their own. That's what it means in context for them to maintain kingdom fidelity. Now, what does it look like for us in our two-party system? And I think it boils down to this. It boils down to remembering that we are part of an alternate kingdom and that our allegiance is to the one true king. Remembering that we are part of an alternate kingdom and that our allegiance is to the one true king. We're part of an alternate, alternate kingdom. Mark Sayers uh, has, has, I think, famously, wisely said, the spirit of the age in which we're in right now is wanting the kingdom without the king. And so there are, there are good things that are wanted. Things like uh, maintaining uh, a biblical sexual ethic and uh, maintaining a stable home and preserving the life of the unborn and pursuing and seeking justice in our land and ensuring that we are stewarding the environment well. These are all things that are, in a sense, kingdom things. They, they characterize the kingdom of God. They are the way it is supposed to be. And both parties, if you will, again, I'm just thinking in terms of our two main parties, both parties, if you will, want some aspect of the kingdom, but reject King Jesus. Both are trying to enact some version of the kingdom. Both have some vision of the good life. Both parties have things in them that Jesus would both commend and condemn. So as Christians, we, we may align with one party or the other. But we're not beholden to one party or the other. We stand in a sense outside them both. It's hitting me in a way it hasn't before. That we are not in between the two parties. We stand outside the two parties. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Our king is King Jesus. We phobeo him. We temeo our ruling parties. We temeo our political platforms. We temeo individual politicians. 
But ultimately, we stand outside and look upon both and we see things that are commendable and things that are condemnable in both parties. Now again, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a Republican or be a Democrat or be an Independent or whatever. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever vote. I'm definitely not hearing me saying that. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we stand outside both of these parties because our citizenship is in another place. Our citizenship is with King Jesus. We seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. We know that in the kingdom of God, the best, the truest of what both parties desire will be found in Christ alone. We wait for His return, Jesus' return, to consummate His kingdom. We pray Thy kingdom come. And we do so as those who are not phobeoing any politician, any political party, any political platform, but the Lord alone. We temeo those things. We don't phobeo those things. We honor those things, but our deepest allegiance is to King Jesus. That changes the way we think about the system that we are in. So, maintain kingdom fidelity. Remember that our citizenship is in an alternate kingdom and our king is Jesus. So then, what does it mean to uh, become politically idolatrous? What, what, what does it mean to reject political idolatry? And Ryan Tafalowski, who's the theologian in residence at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, said it in a way that I think is just brilliant. He said this, We commit political idolatry when we reverse the last two phrases at the end of verse 17. Instead of fearing God and honoring the emperor, instead of phobeoing God and temeoing the emperor, we temeo God and we phobeo the emperor. In other words, we give our ultimate allegiance to a political party, platform, or person rather than to God. We forget that Jesus is on the throne. We forget that the kingdom that is coming is the kingdom that we as people created in God's image inherently long for and as Christians whose hope is in Christ will one day enjoy and instead look to a political party, platform, or person to do what King Jesus has already secured for us. We reverse the order at the end of verse 17. Peter actually also warns us about this in verse 13. Now, it's, it's, we don't see it because we're not looking at the Greek. But in verse 13, Peter writes this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But that word human, uh, the word institution or the phrase human institution could also be translated human creatures or human creation. Now, this again was at an age where it was expected that the emperor would be worshipped. So in this age of emperor worship where the emperor was looked to as God, Peter, and they would have seen it in the Greek when they read it or when they heard it read, Peter is saying, you know, submit, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. <laughs> Whether to the emperor, who's a human creature. He's not God. We're not going to worship him. And so he's even here warning against what we could call political idolatry. And the order of what he says at the, verse, at the end of verse 17 is very important. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
Now, I, I think that's at a huge level what is happening in our society right now. Increasingly so. And it's not just because of the, the, the polarization that social media fuels. I think it also has to do with the fact that religious adherence is on the wane. Right? Less and less people are looking to God in our society. At the same time, all people are created in God's image and have, because we're created in God's image, to know Him, yet reject Him, but to some degree still want what can only be found in Him, wanting the kingdom without the king. So where do we look? If we're not looking to God anymore for those kinds of things, where do we look? We look to politics. If we're going to have the good life, if we're going to have the kingdom without the king, then we need power in order to acquire it. And so you've got this perfect storm of the ability of people to pursue power, demand power, push the other people down because we're not looking to God, and we have a platform that is global and instant in social media. How do we as Christians know we're getting sucked in to this political ideology that leads to polarization? The answer is by the way in which we speak or type. The things that we say on social media. James says this, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Again, James is not saying, With it we curse our brothers and sisters in Christ. With it we curse people made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That's James 3, uh, 8-10. Paul in Colossians 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Peter, in 1 Peter uh, 3, says that we are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, but to do so with what? Gentleness and respect. There's a real, uh, you know, universal, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whenever we find ourselves as Christians engaging in the us versus them discourse, contributing to the breakdown of civil discourse in our country, it is because there's something going on in the heart. Again, Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James tells us in James chapter 4, he asks this question, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And that word for passions has to do with inordinate desire. It's a word that's often translated lust in the Bible. An inordinate desire leads you to attack the other person verbally. And when it comes to the political sphere, then we need to ask, what is it that I inordinately desire? Am I tomatoing some politician, platform, or party? Looking to that for something that only God can give me, having an inordinate desire for that and consequently attacking them. And so one of the ways that we as Christians, I think, can be challenged by God's Word to do some serious heart exploration 
is by just reflecting on the way that we talk or talk about or post online when it comes to people who are of a different political persuasion than we are. Juan Sanchez, a theologian and commentator, said this, Are we not worshiping a creature when we promote a particular leader or party as the answer to society's ills? As the one who can inaugurate heaven on earth? And what does it say about us when we speak of a mere human as an evil power that rivals God, as though the wrong election result might well bring hell on earth? Because Christians, we've got to wrestle with that. In what way does our speech, our typing, our posts, and even the way in which we think about people in the other party reflect what Sanchez is warning against there? So, maintain kingdom fidelity, reject political idolatry, and then third, Peter tells us to live as people who are free. Take a look at the middle of the passage here. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, the cover-up for evil that he's talking about here is probably, in context, refusing to submit to those who are in governing authority over you. So don't think because you're now free in Christ, no longer enslaved to sin, enjoying the freedom of the gospel as a follower of God, that you no longer need to submit to governing authorities out of reverence for God. So that's what he means in context. I think the question that we need to wrestle with, perhaps, in our society, is what does it mean to be free in Christ in terms of the way we live and what, what ought we not to fear when it comes to our freedom? What does it mean to be free in Christ? We are now free to honor God, to serve God, to love our neighbor. And we need not fear the loss of what so many of us might fear, which is the loss of religious liberty, the loss of freedom. They did not have religious liberty. And yet Peter said, you're free. You're free to do all these things I'm commanding you to do. You're free to honor everyone. You're free to do good. You're free to submit to the emperor. You're free to honor him. Because you have been set free in Christ. All those things that I just described are freedoms that can't be taken away from us. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in knowing that whoever is in the West Wing, whoever controls the Senate, whoever controls the House, and no matter where that might lead, the freedom that we have in Christ will never be taken away from us. We will always be free to serve God. We will always be free to serve others. We will always be free to speak well of others and to others. Now, we may be persecuted for it. Christians have been throughout the ages. But their fundamental freedom in Christ could never, ever, ever be taken away. And ours won't either. So we can live as people who are free. What then does that look like? Well, it looks like a number of things. It looks like humility. When, when Peter says here in verse 17... 
honor or tomeo everyone. He's saying there, give to everyone that which is their due. Everyone, as fellow image bearers, give to them that respect and honor that they are do as people created in God's image. What does that look like politically? Again, no matter what political persuasion you are, you should have the humility to recognize that within your own party and your own set of political beliefs, there is that that Jesus would commend and there is that that Jesus would condemn. And the same is true of people of another political party. There are things that people of another political party are seeking and pursuing that fundamentally, maybe not in terms of expression or, or the way in which they're going about it, but fundamentally are things that Jesus would commend. And also likewise are things that Jesus would condemn. This is true, again, as we look at both parties as those who are citizens of an alternate kingdom, worshiping Jesus, the one true king. And so it ought to lead to a place of humility, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. In a sense, what I'm hoping is that the application of this passage will make us both less political and more political at the same time. Less political in the sense of less partisan, fighting for my side, whatever my side is but more political in the sense of willing to do good as we honor all. So again, look back at the passage. Peter says, for this is the will of God in verse 15, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, keep in mind, Peter is calling Christians who are under an oppressive ruler to do good. Peter refers to them as exiles. He's echoing the kind of sentiment that we see in Jeremiah 29. Pursue the welfare, or the Hebrew word is shalom, pursue the peace of the city in which you live, the place in which you find yourself as exiles. Peter is saying, do the same thing where you live. What does that look like politically? Well, because we have this humility, recognizing that whatever my per political persuasion is, there are things amongst my party's platform that Jesus would both commend and condemn, and the same is true for those who think differently. That in that place of humility, I can seek to be more political in the sense of bond together with people in this community that are seeking to decide together how to best govern our society for the common good. In that sense, we can be more political. But from a place of humility, out of a desire to honor all, not from a place of trying to grasp power, as if the only way the kingdom can come on earth is if my party rules. Maintain kingdom fidelity. Reject political idolatry. Live as people who are free. Listen, I think that this... The church has an opportunity here that I, I, I think we need to grasp. If, if we will really be people who remember that our citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth, our king is Jesus, and so we're not beholden to any political party, and can with humility look at ourselves and look at those who believe differently politically than we do and recognize that there are both things that Jesus would commend and things that Jesus would condemn, and can therefore, out of that place, speak well. Speak words of grace seasoned with salt. Being quick to confess our own sin, get the log out of our own eye, even as we seek to remove the speck in our, in, in our brother's eye, which is a good thing to do. 
We can actually be people who demonstrate God's peace. Can give a preview of what the kingdom of God looks like. In an age in which people are increasingly pushed to the end of the poles. Pushed to the margin. Pushing each other to the margin. We can occupy a space, not because we're moderates in between the two, but because our citizenship is somewhere else. And by our manner of speech, by our conduct, by the way in which we love our neighbor, we can give a preview of the kingdom that is to come. Maintain kingdom fidelity, reject political idolatry, live as people who are free. How do we keep the order right? Fundamentally, because we are people who are marked by hope. Hope. Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. He did not do so by grasping power for himself. He didn't say, give me the throne in Rome, give me the cross outside the city, is where he went. In order to inaugurate and establish a kingdom, not in strength, but in weakness. But he rose, and he reigns, The kings of the earth will bow to him. The sun will be kissed in the sense that the sun will be worshipped and glorified either gladly or with great terror. And our king will return. Our God intends to dwell again with us. Jesus will come back to make all things new. In that hope, we can live now as people who are righteous living in the way of the kingdom of God, following Jesus, demonstrating His perfect peace. In the book of Acts, it is said of David that David served the Lord in his generation, and then he died. Like I mentioned that last week. I'm going to wrap this one up in the same way. That really is the call. It really is the challenge to us. We're only here for a little while. In the time that we have, in this one life that we have to live, will we serve the Lord in our generation? Individually, as a church family, in society, and yes, even politically. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to be a people who seek your glory and yours alone because we submit to you first, and out of reverence to you, submit to those whom you put in authority over us. Help us to be people who remember that we are citizens of an alternate kingdom, and that our allegiance is to the one true King. And we ask this in his name. Amen.